Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the U.S. Chamber Foundation's Path Forward. If you're just joining us, welcome. If you've been with us throughout this series, thank you for returning. We have been bringing together leaders from government and academia and business and nonprofit, all crucial fields as we try to navigate our path forward in returning to work. We've been exploring all facets of this conversation from testing and PPE to essential services like childcare and transit. We've talked about the psychology of human behavior and what it will take to get demand back. We've looked at lessons from other countries that are ahead of us on reopening. And last week, we had a really interesting discussion about high-density businesses. Today, we're going to talk about what a return to work actually looks like. We know that many of the things that we took for granted just a few short months ago, things like being together in an office, a restaurant, a gym, common areas, are going to look much different when they reopen. Right now, it's hard to imagine you know, waiting in line for a flight or being together in a coffee shop or being in a bustling office. But by this weekend, every single state in the union will be in some phase of reopening. What's it going to look like? What will it feel like? And most importantly, will we feel safe? We know from this series that consumers are the real decision makers about when we reopen the economy. Public health officials can say when, government leaders can lift restrictions, business owners can open their doors, but employees have to be comfortable and consumers have to be comfortable if they're going to leave their home. So it's critical as we think about businesses and industries returning to work that we think about the places that they're going to gather. And today we're going to talk with experts about the role that indoor environments play in spreading the virus, how we can use that data to inform our decisions about when and how to reopen different venues, what socially distant distancing really looks like as we reopen. And we're pleased to have a phenomenal group of panelists with us today, starting with Dr. Joseph Allen, who is Assistant Professor in the Department of Environmental Health and Director of the Healthy Buildings Program at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Also joining us is Lindsay Leininger. She is the Health Service Researcher and Clinical Professor of Business Administration at Dartmouth. We're also pleased to welcome, welcome Jeroen Lokursu. Uh, Jeroen is head of the Netherlands office of Cushman and Wakefield and project partner of the Six Feet office. We're going to take audience questions at the end, and so I hope you will put them in the chat bar as we go along. And let's first start with Dr. Allen. Dr. Allen, thank you for being with us. Before we turn specifically to COVID-19, your work focuses on indoor environments, on schools, homes, hospitals, etc. Historically, what role have indoor environments played in the spread of disease? Well, yeah, so thanks first for, uh, thanks for everyone for joining us, and thanks for inviting me to participate here with these other are experts. It's a real, it's a real pleasure, and I hope to share some practical guidance that people can take in their offices right now, offices, homes, schools, uh, airports, you name it. Um, so it's a great first question because I want to just quickly touch on some of the history here, and I'll do it fast and try to keep it really interesting. But if you look at how we used to design buildings, and I'm thinking specifically here around some something like ventilation rate, how much fresh outdoor air comes inside inside of a building. Throughout the 1900s, we based ventilation rates on infectious disease transmission. We lost our way a bit in the 1970s in response to the energy crisis, where uh, you know we thought we were making good decisions then, but we decided to uh, tighten up our building envelopes and we stopped letting our buildings breathe. When we did that, we allowed the buildup of indoor pollutants and it brought on the era of sick buildings. In fact, the term sick building syndrome came right after we started doing that to our building. We've been in the sick building era. Uh, we've lost our way in the sense that our, our standard setting bodies 
have largely been set with public health absent from that conversation. In fact, the, the, on terms of the ventilation standard, uh, the body that sets it hasn't been able to agree even amongst itself whether it's a health-based standard or an engineering-based standard. And that's a problem right there. So, um, you know, we, we, we haven't had people at the center of our, of our building. Um, I just authored a book. It came out last month called Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Drive Performance and Productivity. We spend 90% of our time indoors. We're an indoor species at this point. And 90% of the cost of our businesses are the people inside. So we've been doing everything around buildings for energy, waste, and water, all critically important, but we've been ignoring that 90%, uh, that the indoor environment has this massive impact on our health uh, and has a massive impact on our business. In fact, the central premise of our book there is building performance drives, human performance drives, business performance. Um, so, you know, I, I think we're about to get back into the era where we were, believe it or not, earlier uh, 100 years ago, where uh, people were the focus, uh, at least for some of these standards we, we've set and, and changed since that. Preview what we've now seen in a study that suggested that the spread of COVID-19 in some Chinese office buildings was related to the air conditioning system. Is that something that we need to be concerned about as we re-enter office buildings? Yeah, so I know that study well. I'd say broadly, uh, first things first, the, the single greatest risk factor for this disease is time spent indoors. So the indoor environment uh, is critically important for control of COVID-19. We do have to understand the all three modes of transmission, right? We have large droplet transmission. That informs strategies like maintaining physical distancing uh, and mask wearing. We also have fomite transmission, inanimate surfaces, and that informs uh, uh, control strategies like cleaning, disinfecting surfaces, and washing hands. And then we have airborne transmission. And that strategies there are things like enhancing the ventilation uh, and filtration rate in buildings. So absolutely, the indoor environment influences whether disease, well, whether buildings protect us from disease or uh, or can and promote the spread. And this we've known this before COVID-19, right? We have examples of measles outbreaks in schools in the 70s where one schoolgirl goes into a, a room and infects a two dozen or more around the school through the mechanical system. Uh, we've seen something similar through um, uh, SARS-CoV-1, the first SARS uh, epidemic, and, and MERS and influenza. So that is not new. I know every uh, that one study of the restaurant got a lot of attention because it show, it's really pretty picture. It shows the airflow across people. I actually don't think that study says what, uh, what we think it says, uh, not diminishing the idea that indoor environments matter for health. I just think there was a lot missing from that study, to be quite honest. I've done forensic investigations of sick buildings for a long time. And I've had a lot of other questions when I read that study. Where did those people spend the time outside of the table? How long were they there? There was no discussion of the time course. Did they take the subway or a bus on the way there or private cars? Did they use the bathroom? How did they move around in the space? Did they all congregate together at the receptionist desk? So there were a lot of unanswered questions about that one study, but to be very clear, indoor environments influence health. There's nothing inherently bad about mechanical systems or air conditioning if, if it's recirculating air and filtering that air. Air conditioning can be done well if you bring in a lot of fresh outdoor air and you filter the recirculated air. So if you're a business owner, and you're trying to decide whether or not you can have your air conditioning on. How do they make that decision? Yeah, so I would put air. I would put ventilation in terms of what we call the hierarchy of controls. Uh, this is a control strategy we've used in worker health and safety for decades, and it's a layered defense approach. It has five parts. They're really easy to understand, and I'll name them quickly to show you where healthy building strategies come in, like air conditioning and ventilation. So first, you want to eliminate the hazard, uh, and I'll order, these are named by the way from most effective to least effective. First is eliminate the hazard. We should encourage work from home strategies where we can, but that's not a path to restarting the, the economy. I agree with the central premise of path forward. We want to save lives and the economy. Second is substitution. So who are the core people 
that have to be back physically present to keep your business running. Identify those people and let them back in this first stage. Three, engineering controls. These are healthy building strategies. Enhanced ventilation, enhanced filtration. By the way, the same uh, healthy building strategies you should, you should use at home, schools, uh, hospitals, wherever. Fourth is administrative control. Here you think about de-densification strategies, how you're going to handle queues at the elevator bank, uh, how you're going to lay out your, your space to uh, maintain six feet distancing. And the fifth strategy there is PPE for personal protective equipment. And that would be things like mask wearing. So we operate under this idea that we know there's no such thing as zero risk, but if you layer in enough of these defense strategies, you can significantly reduce the risk. And so healthy building strategies play a role as one part of a larger framework. And I like the hierarchy of controls as a, as a nice framework to think about how to reduce risk as we return to office, return to buildings and restart this economy. One of the problems I have in moderating this series is I get really interested and I find myself taking notes in the middle. So I may have missed one of the five. I may have to come back to you myself in the Q&A. Uh, but, but it made me think of something else, which is, do you think the risks vary greatly based on kind of the type of business or the type of uh, building? And, and I guess what I mean by that is, is a school different than a grocery store different than an office based on the type of business and the type of traffic? Or is it simply the structure of the building? Yeah, no, it definitely varies by location. It's a great question because it's going to matter about um, things like the intensity of exposure, how many people are in the space. Uh, you know, certain buildings or, or locations or schools have choke points in the building where it's really hard to de-densify. Think of elevators, for example. Um, uh, and of course, it'll be very different for high-risk uh, patients. So senior homes would be very different risk profile from uh, a college dormitory. So, you know, definitely the building matters. I guess first, though, is higher order. If we think about these the transmission pathways and then apply control strategies, it can all make sense. And then you just tailor it based on the specifics of that building, of the characteristics of the people that are in that building, and also, really important, the context of what's happening in terms of disease dynamics in that region. So that should help inform the strategy. I think one of the most challenging things we face right now is as companies start to get a handle on their return to office strategies is the next question to me is really clear. How will you know it's working? So you could think about all these strategies you have going, but then you have to come up with a way to verify that in the context of regional disease dynamics, but also dynamics within your own organization and building. It's a lot to think about. And it's exactly why we've been doing this series. You know, we keep saying that public health officials can determine when to reopen, but business owners have all of these factors to think about. And particularly if you're a small business, you may not have the resources in particular to go through these long chest checklists or to think about all of this potential credentialing, et cetera. So how would you prioritize or give advice to a small business owner that may have to think about this in a simpler process? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, so I want to be clear too that, right, I'm very solution focused. I have never came across in all my sick building investigations, I never came across a building, a, an underperforming building we couldn't turn into a high performing building. And the, it's a total, it's a misnomer that it has to be expensive. And in fact, all the, the strategies I've been giving going back to early February, my first piece that I wrote as where I said, healthy buildings need to be the first line of defense against COVID-19 um, are, are strategies that nearly every building can undertake right now, right? I'm not talking about a capital investment in some new fancy technology that you have to put up in your ductwork. Really, if, you do, if you're if you careful about um, uh, enhanced cleaning and disinfection, bringing in a bit more fresh outdoor air, increasing the, the efficiency of the 
filtration and your return ducts, which does not cost a lot of money. Um, and then being smart about your administrative controls. These are all things that don't cost all that much and can be quite effective. And I, I like the hierarchy of controls because it does simplify it a bit. I mean, one of the real challenges here, as you know, is there's so much information coming at people. And if you just take these five things, eliminate the hazard, substitute, engineering controls, administrative controls, PPE, it's a way to, to make order out of the chaos, say, okay, this is why I'm pursuing these strategies. And it, it's actually a prioritization scheme. That hierarchy I listed is most effective to least effective. So if you build it that way, any business, any size, any budget can come up with a strategy to reduce risk in your building. Healthy buildings are not confined to you know, the shiny new skyscraper in, uh, you know, downtown New York City or something. It's, it's actually uh, can and has to be every building. That's a tr that's terrific intelligence for us. I think it's great. Let me ask you, in terms of buildings, but just this past Monday, you uh, had a piece published in the Washington Post about airplanes. And so what's your take? Do airplanes really make you sick? Yeah, so the, the, uh, the title of the piece caught some attention because it says uh, you don't get sick when you fly, really. And um, so, you know, what's a healthy buildings researcher doing talking about airplanes? You know, it's just a another interesting indoor environment. I actually have done uh, 10 years of research on air quality in airplanes. And I was the 20, uh, in 2013, I was the lead author of a National Academy's report on infectious disease mitigation in airports on an airplane. So it turns out on an airplane, the air quality is actually quite good when you're sitting down. You get 10 to 12 air changes per hour and all the recirculated air goes through a HEPA filter. HEPA filters capture 99.97% of airborne particles. To put that in context, in a hospital airborne infection isolation room does six air changes per hour up to 12 and also does HEPA. Point being that the air in the airplane is actually quite good. That's different from saying you don't get sick when you travel. You can't disentangle that time on the airplane. People point right to that and I understand it, but think about every time you take an airplane, you're in a security queue, you wait at the gate. Maybe you didn't sleep well the night before, you're possibly changing time zones. Maybe you took a cab, a taxi, a bus, an Uber, you sleep in a hotel, you're at a conference room. All of these other factors are also gonna influence your health. Turns out if you look at the, the engineering controls on an airplane, uh, in my view, and I think what the science is pretty clear is that that time when you're seated in the seated in the seat uh, in the airplane is the lowest risk uh, throughout the whole process. Wow, no, no wonder that piece got a lot of attention. We already have a number of audience questions for you, so I can't back, but let me take and bring Lindsay into this conversation. Uh, Lindsay, a number of states have started their own approaches as this gradual reopening start. We have some that are continuing stay-at-home orders, opening different phases, opening all at once. What are the pros and cons to the different approaches? I think I have a lot of empathy for state leaders right now because it is a game of balancing risk that we don't have great estimates on. So people care about the economy, people care about our health, and people really want to open back up but do so safely. You know, one of the questions we get a lot, and frankly, I get from my teenage daughter, is how long <laughs> am I going to be social distancing? You know, how, how long am I going to have to stay six feet away from people? How long do you think that lasts? That is a great question. And, you know, I wish I had a crystal ball to answer it clearly. But let me let me say that we are emerging upon a new social contract. And I actually think businesses are sort of at the forefront of doing it. And that new social contract involves protecting ourselves and protecting each other. So I think when I think about people in my circle, staying physically distant from people, doing good hand hygiene is going to be part of our social contract for a long long time to come, regardless of what the particular unique context and your circumstances dictate. I'm definitely not telling my daughter that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, be social, just try to be a touch physically distant. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? And I think you're right about the basics of keeping six feet apart and hand washing and masks and, and how important it is. I think um, 
people keep holding out hope that there'll be therapeutics or a vaccine that will make these kind of what we consider the basics less important. But that's not what we're hearing from experts like you, is it? That's right. The basics are all, well, they're not all we have right now, but they're our best hope. And But there is more hope on the other fronts too, right? We're fighting this at the bench, at the bedside, and in the broader population. And I think industry leaders have a seat at all of these tables and community leaders too. So I think the bench, um, the new vaccines, the new treatments, there's a lot of wonderful innovation there. I think about all the clinical protocols that our frontline hero health workers have stood up and that corporations and small business owners like uh, software engineers are helping to implement. And then I'm thinking about broader society, again, with this social contract and the, the trust, frankly, that small business owners have with their community. But for right now, washing your hands, keeping your distance, wearing a mask really is the best advice. And so, you know, as we're seeing more outbreaks of COVID-19 in rural areas, um, they seem more naturally socially distanced, you know, at least to those of us who live in cities. So do you think the same guidelines apply out in the countryside? So I live in rural northern New Hampshire. So thank you for this question. <laughs> I think every race is going to have a different set of considerations, population density, et cetera. But in rural locations, we have other markers of vulnerability. We have some individual level vulnerability in terms of socioeconomic challenges and health challenges. And also we have a little bit of industrial vulnerability as we're seeing with rural employers like meatpacking plants, for example. So I think the threat is quite real, rural or urban, but I do think the approaches to getting through this are gonna be different place by place. Before, before I move on, from the social distancing questions, I think another thing we hear from business owners a lot is, how am I going to enforce this? You know, I, I tell people in an office setting that they can come back to work but not have meetings. How am I going to enforce it if I find people in a conference room or people standing too close together in the hallway? And you know, how do you enforce things that really are, as you said a minute ago, part of a social contract? That's right. That's changing behavior. But I have a lot of faith in our business leaders and our nonprofit leaders and our education leaders that they know how to do this best in their setting. There is some professional society guidelines I really like the stuff that's being put out by the Society for Human Resource Management. There are resources out there, but you got to go with your gut and your heart because you know your employees and your clients best. I think that's right. And I think it's such an important time for leaders to develop trust with their customers and their employees. And so the, the guidelines are taken from an authentic you know, sense of caring and well-being for each other, not just feeling arbitrary. So, so moving- I pop in on that? I want to amplify that point because it's so important. We talk a lot about testing, tracing, treatment. I want to add a fourth T and that's trust. And I think that right now people trust different folks. Some people trust government. Some people love their community leaders. You know, people look to different sources. And I think small business owners can really help build the trust that we need to get through this crisis. I, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. Such an important time. So, so let me turn for a minute and talk about your favorite Facebook group. So you have a Dear Pandemic, which is kind of described as COVID-19 information for a viral age from those nerdy girls. Uh, how did that come about? So we have a wonderful group of female PhD public health scientists.
scientists, two of whom started off um, just on a Facebook campaign. One of whom, Malia Jones at Wisconsin, wrote an email to her friends and family that went viral. So we got a, so a group of us started getting a flood of questions from friends and family. We joined up. You can find us at Dear Pandemic, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we offer evidence-based information for this viral aid. We really are an education platform. I think it's great. So what kind of questions do you get? They come in three flavors. So I think the most popular questions are about personal activities of daily living, right? Like, can I eat an apple? Can I fly on a plane, you know, to bring, <laughs> to bring back in the earlier conversation? So those are our most popular. I think because we all are PhDs, our second type of question that we get is about data. How do I interpret data and evidence and what's real and what's fake? And I think I think last but certainly not least, we get asked to opine on the news of the day. So whether it be some viral video that's full of misinformation and it needs debunking, whether it's the conversation on universal masking um, or the conversation on how to safely reopen businesses, we really tackle questions about today. Well, that leads me to my next, well, first of all, I'm definitely joining that Facebook group, but going to a different uh, question, which you just led me to, I think we're all feeling that, that there's so much information and so many sources. We're aware that there's also myths and even disinformation, right? How are you vetting it all? I mean, how are you figuring that out? And what advice do you have for others trying to figure out and sort through it, all the sources? So I've written about on the Dear Pandemic page, I've there are three laws that I sort of playfully refer to as Lindsay's laws about vetting information right now. And the first is a quote from the extraordinary um, scientist Carl Sagan, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, right? So if something sounds outrageous, it better have outrageous evidence behind it. The second is be like Abraham Lincoln. He assembled a team of rivals. He intentionally sought out alternative viewpoints from his own. So again, seek alternative viewpoints. And then last but not least, focus on amplifying the good information from the experts you know and you trust. Sometimes recirculating bad misinformation can actually have what's called the backfire effect, where it keeps it in the news cycle longer than it should be. So we all can be part of a better information ecosystem by amplifying the good and just letting the bad stuff fall out of the I think that's great. That's, that's a great piece of advice for all of us, I think. So let me ask you a question and then I'll bring our third speaker in. I understand that you're hoping to teach a course next year uh, called Pandemics in the Private Sector. As you might imagine, that has a lot of appeal to those of us at the U.S. Chamber. We are really seeing incredible innovation from companies and individuals across the private sector. Um, and, and, and there were similar innovations in, in, in similar or different crises over the years, whether they were pandemics or natural disasters or acts of terrorism. Um, so which of these lessons do you plan on and examples and lessons do you plan on sharing with your with your students? That's a great question, Suzanne. I'm so excited about the possibility of teaching this. So again, I think bench, bedside, broader population. That's population health and a framework. And industry plays such a crucial role in all of these and has throughout Ebola, through SARS, through MERS, now through coronavirus. So I can't wait to introduce business school students to public health and public health students to the important innovative role that businesses played bench, bedside, broader population. Well, um, maybe those are the new three Bs, but you can count on the chamber to help feed you examples anytime uh, of the great innovation that we see every day from the business 
business community. Uh, so let me turn and bring Jeroen into this conversation. Thank you for being with us. So here we are talking about what a return to work actually looks like. We talked about healthy buildings. We talked about uh, social contracts and the way that people act and get information. Your firm is making headlines for a design concept that you're calling the Six Feet Office. Can you tell us about that? Yes, absolutely. We uh, we designed uh, a new concept and we actually try to use design as well to nudge behavior. Changing behavior is not that easy. So you have to try to do that with very simple protocols, but also very simple visualization. And once you do that, our experience after like six weeks testing now is that people uh, start changing differently uh, to the new rules, the six feet apart at all times, the one way routing to the office, clockwise to the office. And actually we see uh, starting with small groups that it works really well and you can nudge behavior in a, in a short amount of time. And clearly there's important protocols, lo local uh, legislation to, to do something like six feet office, which we've now implemented in, in, in quite a few offices across the globe, Sydney, Prague, uh, Paris, and uh, with, with yeah, small modification, customizing to, to local needs or type of work that's being done, you can actually make a big impact and change to, uh, to how you work. So you did this work so quickly. Did it just become immediately apparent to you that the way we work was gonna have to change? Uh, actually it was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had a meeting 2015 5th of March with the Minister of Economic Affairs in the Netherlands and he told me about that we had to start thinking about a six feet society. It would stay with us for a pretty long time and instead of driving back to my home office I drove back to our empty headquarters and there I started moving furniture around, called a few colleagues, called our head of design and, and we started thinking can we actually do this? Can we get working more safe? Can we can we be operational in a small amount, short amount of time and can we get the economy started again uh, where people feel safe and, and, and where we can, can deal with the uncertainties we currently have and that's how we started and it's actually designed from day one on two horizons. Horizon one is back to work as safe as possible, soon as possible, and second horizon is just making work better long term. So you've set this up in Amsterdam in your office and how are visitors and employees reacting to it, experiencing it? The true answer is that they love it. We have a lot of clients coming over, global clients, Dutch clients, small entrepreneurs, uh, and also our colleagues. They're, they're really happy to be back at work. They see we, we take care of them, we take them seriously, uh, they feel safe, and over and over again they, they keep telling us it's so great to be back at work and it's so great to see that we actually have an environment which is safe where it is taken care of as currently needed and that is social distance. How does a team collaborate in a six-foot office environment? It's the same as in any other. We use a little bit more space. We have quite a few measures to indeed we monitor our air quality a lot better uh, but, but also we have a big meeting rooms. There used to be 16 people now there's 12 people in the room and mm -hmm. easily with some protocols, how to enter, how to leave the room, we can safeguard at all time the six feet uh, stay, stay apart from each other. So it works pretty well and it feels like before. It's, it's Sometimes it feels like we take it too complicated. Eh? Normal distance would be two, three feet apart. Otherwise you would do a step back if I get too close to your personal space. Now it's six feet. We can work really well in six feet and it feels like a real office where people are, are happy to be again, to feel the culture, to debate, to yeah, to be working again on those ambitions of comp. I love that because it's such an optimistic viewpoint. And I think we have other examples of changing behavior very quickly in a way that started to feel like a new normal. You know, if you think of TSA after 9-11 and, you know, the first time you went through an airport, it felt so different and then we just all got used to it. So that sounds, um, you know, optimistic of you that, okay, we did two feet, we're going to go to six feet, you know, we can, we can figure this out. So this is a little bit 
like a question I just asked uh, Lindsay a second ago, which is we've heard from some business owners as things reopen that they're worrying about um, how they police these protocols, right? So have you had any challenges or seen any challenges with people just pulling a chair too close to someone or uh, getting too many people on an elevator or going in through the outdoor, which is going to have a whole new meaning now? Uh, actually, yes. And, and one of the most important lessons is to start small with a small amount of people, then it's much easier to uh, test where your bottlenecks are and what the complications might be. And, and we've seen now that there were some bottlenecks and we've updated those. We've changed it. We've changed our visuals. We've changed our routing through the office. And people are actually pretty aware how serious the current situation is. And we also believe in that big word is trust. And trust is also trusting your people. We have to keep ourselves and each other safe. We, we have highly educated colleagues. Uh, they are with our company because they love our culture. And we believe that they can also take some responsibility themselves most importantly, very simple, very clear, very easy guidelines. Once you do that, you sit people down, you tell them what the change is that we need to stay safe. Uh, they'll pretty quickly implement it. And, and we've started with small groups. We are now in the phase of scaling up. You've also done, if I'm, if I in reading this correctly, you've also implemented some early uh, testing and contact tracing, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, protocols. And a lot of business owners in the United States are trying to think of what that would look and feel like here. So how are your employees reacting to some of those tools? Now, clearly, that's also still in the testing phase. And one important thing to note here is that we're, we're track, tracking flows of people. We're not tracking individual. Privacy laws in Europe are very, very strict. We take it, it's highly uh, valuable your privacy so we're not allowed to measure data on individual people not on their health situation or anything like that so their own responsibility the trust in people is super important but still we like to track flows of people so we can optimize our building designs also going forward also long term but also we get signals if you get too close to someone else that is things we can do and we would also like to show our regulators in holland to health and safety people this is how we do it this is our plan that we've implemented our protocols this is the design and we actually you can track afterwards that people are behaving in line with what we have designed so nudging the nudging behavior with design so it sounds to me like you think these could be permanent changes that we're not going back to we're not we're not dismantling the six-foot office anytime soon. Is that right? I, I believe that, 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 that we are responsible for a safe and healthy workplace, but also creating a better work-life balance. And uh, this combination, better work-life balance, health and safety workplace, if you do that, you'll probably get more engagement from your employees. And that experience, what we're learning now, is to me extremely important. Second Horizon really means moving forward, learn lessons, and, and really create a better work-life balance and a better workplace. Yeah, that, that's, that's our responsibility. We should do it long-term as well. And things might change and things will change. And it will hopefully ease how we uh, are uh, connecting with each other. How long, we don't really know. But we have to move forward. We have to get going and also take those long-term lessons. It's important from day one, long-term. What can we actually improve in this company? We've learned more in the past two months than the two years before this. So let's try to do that all together. I think that's right. And I I think it relates to something we were just talking about with Lindsay about innovation, that, that we're seeing medical breakthroughs and science breakthroughs, and we're also seeing business breakthroughs and innovative uh, business ideas like yours about how to live in this new normal way. Um, talk about other types of innovations, contactless payment or touch-free alternatives, you know, door pulls that you do with your feet, etc. What other types of innovations are you seeing? There's a lot of innovation and we like to drive innovation as well. We see it as a living lab at the same time. It has to be safe. That's the center. Our employees have to feel safe, but we're driving a lot of innovation. Some high tech 
Uh, we have now an app where you can sign into your seats. Uh, you can have your lunch uh, served. We have an open bar, open yeah, restaurant again, safe food in the office. Uh, it's important to me that people get a healthy meal and also sit together, not behind their desk, but in a room to have a chat apart from their normal day work. Um, and, and there's also simple tools like what we have, for instance, here to open doors is this simple copper tool to, to, to put on touch screens and put open. Not everything is technology and technology is here to support us. It sometimes works fantastic, but don't overreact. I completely agree that what we have done is not super expensive, doesn't need to take long, start moving it forward and stay respons uh, act responsibly. We can do this uh, and we, we can get moving. So your firm helped some 10,000 organizations in China move nearly a million employees back into offices. So what were the biggest takeaways you had from that gigantic project? Yeah, it's gigantic. And, and what we've heard already before is that SARS one was uh, important. So there were complete protocols and guidelines already in place. So 200 page documents, which were updated and ready early February to implement. And that's also where our guidelines here for the rest of the world, for the globe and for the US are based on. Our recovery readiness guidelines for big part based on our experiences we had in, in China. It's not something we developed now. It's been a long time ago. We updated it to the current situation, this uh, COVID-19 uh, thing. So there's long guidelines, but clearly you'll find everything in those details, air quality, social distancing, and those healthy measures and social hygiene, washing your hands, staying, uh, doing that a little more often, like what we've discussed before, those are super important to, uh, to implement and to also make it a more normal environment. So we're gonna head to Q&A. I, I don't, we've been doing this series for a long time and I've never seen so much audience Q&A. So I wanna bring all three of you into this, but let me ask you one last question before we do that. So the six feet office seems relatively straightforward and office, you know, is right there in the title. But we're both getting audience Q&A and I'm question and I have the question, how does it relate to other workplaces, whether that's a school or a grocery store or what, what practices are you seeing that might translate into other environments as well? We, we're helping shopping center owners and we've designed six feet retail as well. And most importantly is, again, people have to feel welcome. They, they have to act responsibly, but feel welcome. You shouldn't get scared from getting somewhere by all the scary or too many signs. Make it very clear, very visible, but also be welcome. Experience now. This is the most important moment for retailers, for owners of companies to show your employees that, that, they, that they're welcome. Come, come in. Be with us eh, and stay safe. These are the rules. Same in retail, same in schools. We're helping schools over Holland here to implement certain protocols where kids feel welcome and happy to be back at school again. With, with social distancing, with the safety measures we have also implemented in our office. It means that these, that's what we've tried to do. The six feet concept can be implemented anywhere on any activity, just tailor and customize it to your local needs and 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 start doing it. Move forward, go. And and I think that's super important for all of us to 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 try to to, to go ahead. And in you in the US, you can learn quite a lot from what's going on now in Europe. We are a few weeks ahead. We have some early experiences. Things are different. We have different guidelines about wearing face masks or not, but the data will show what, what works and what doesn't work. And we'll learn those lessons on a daily basis. I, I really like where you ended there because it goes for trust conversation. And I think we are advising business owners all the time, uh, follow the public health guidelines, post the guidelines and protocols that you're following, communicate, communicate, communicate with your customers and your employees to try to build up that sense of safety and trust. Okay, we've got a lot of questions. So everybody ready? Get, get your um, get your lightning round hats on here. Joe, I'm going to come to you first. Um, lots of questions about the fact that, that you've 
emphasize circulation and ventilation in terms of whether or not you're in a healthy building or one that might um, help prevent or at least not promote COVID-19. And the questions we're getting are, how do I know? What, what are the specific questions I ask about my ventilation or circulation system to know that, that whether I'm safe or not? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so thanks for whoever uh, who sent that in. And um, you know what you can do is you can ask uh, uh, the people who are running your building what their plan is. And I would look at beyond ventilation, but you can ask some specifics here. Ask how many, if you wanna get how many air changes per hour or what the ventilation rate is, you should be targeting up to 30 CFM per person, cubic feet per minute. In terms of the filtration, make sure the recirculated air is a MERV 13, M-E-R-V 13 or higher. Typically a building has a MERV 6 or a MERV 8. So there are some, specifics you can you can uh, really ask about it and then i'd say people should be asking how are they verifying it don't accept the plan you want to say what's the plan and what's the documentation and verification that it's working that should include real-time monitoring of the air quality and independent audits to be sure that the systems are in place and ask what the gating criteria are for then saying when are we going to move from phase one to phase two and if it gets worse and doesn't work we are gonna move back to phase one. So ask about the phased approach and what the gating criteria are for advancing to the next phase. That's fantastic. Let me ask you a related question. We're being asked by somebody who owns a preschool and doesn't have air conditioning about the impact of fans. Yeah, so you have to be careful here when you think about um, how fans move uh, the air. It's not just how much fresh outdoor air comes in, but it's also about uh, the airflow of people and across people. So ans fans can be really effective if you're bringing out in outdoor air. Uh, to move and circulate that air. Bringing in ventilation doesn't have to be through an air conditioning system. If you're naturally ventilated buildings, the, the, your recommendation is open those windows up a little bit and fans can help distribute that air. But you shouldn't be blowing air across people, right? So if I'm infectious and the airflow is coming from me and blowing into you, uh, that's gonna enhance uh, the, the fine aerosol transmission to you. So fans are good if they're circulating the air, but they shouldn't be blowing across people. Great advice. Uh, Lindsay, let me turn to you. We're getting a question from the audience about what if social distancing just isn't possible? What if I'm in a profession where I just have to, I'm a waiter, I'm a waitress, I do something where I have to get closer to people. What advice do you recommend in those situations? Thanks so much for that question um, from the audience. And I do, I, I want to say we've entered an approach now that we in public health called harm reduction. So sometimes the ideal just is not possible. So you have to do your, that's all anyone can do under the constraints they're facing. So if you can't physical distance six feet, you can still protect others and still protect yourself. Wear your mask, practice good personal hygiene, uh, build the workplace trust that you're all doing whatever you can, even if you can't keep the six foot rule. So Jeroen, let me go back to you for a minute. The question we're getting from the audience is what does the six foot bathroom look like? Yeah, it doesn't really look much different. The only most important thing that we have done is in a bathroom, there's only one person allowed in the male's bathroom or in the female's bathroom. And there's a simple thing on the door where it shows that it's occupied or not. In our Spanish Madrid office, there's now a red light outside. So you don't walk in, you always keep your six feet distance. And clearly that has some impact on possibly a little weight line before the restroom. Uh, but, but this is what we do. And, and don't make it too complicated. We're not here rebuilding an office building. We're just trying to deal with the current situation in the most effective way that it is. And people are completely okay to wait a little bit because they're so happy to be back at work that they'll take their, keep that distance. Uh, so men are finally going to feel women's pain <laughs> about waiting in line for a bathroom. Is that what you're telling us? <laughs> Same thing, <Suzanne. laughs> 
So, so Lindsay, this goes back a little bit to, I think, um, public health and public health behaviors, because uh, people are really worried about bathrooms and they're worried about elevators. Um, how, if there are two people already on the elevator and a third person gets on, how do you tell them to get off the elevator? You know, how, what are the, the social protocols you use with somebody who might not be sensitive to the six feet barriers? Do you have advice for that situation? Always lead with empathy, right? That will engender behavior change much better than leading with aggression, right? So you can also say, oh, look, I really want to do my best to protect you. So let's figure out a way to stay further apart. So I think often when you phrase this in terms of protecting others, that lands better than stay away. <laughs> so so it's, uh, I'd love to let you on this elevator with me, but I, I'm afraid for your safety. So back off, buddy. That's because that's, that's the kind right. of empathy yeah. you're trying to build. And maybe okay. turn buddy in your head. Oh, and right. That's your internal monologue. <laughs> <laughs> I do tend to get those two things used. Um, Joe, let me come back to you for a minute. Audience question about plexiglass, that we're seeing people put plexiglass barriers up. We've seen some early pictures of poker tables with plexiglass separating people or um, uh, certainly grocery store and drugstore checkout lines. Uh, is that a way that we can allow people to be closer than six feet and still be safe? Yes, it's a real... Oh. Sorry, John, go ahead. That's true. Okay, yeah, so I'll answer, sure. You know, I, I tend to start, again, think about how we're exposed, the modes of transmission, and any control that can help reduce spread uh, is effective depending on the situation. So uh, there's definitely, it's definitely uh, useful in a place like a grocery store where you can't separate and you're gonna have people constantly in the same place because really what that plexiglass is doing is, prevent, is, is limiting exposure to large droplets. If I cough or sneeze, or even when I breathe, I emit a whole range of aerosols of different sizes. Some are large and settle out. If I cough, I can project it out 20, 20 something feet. So if you have a physical barrier, it's just one extra layer of precaution. I also agree with Lindsay, and I've written about this in the Washington Post going back to March, that, the, that universal mask, mask wearing is a must. It follows that same kind of logic. The first and foremost, it's a barrier to for, uh, prevent emissions, a physical barrier, uh, more so than protecting the wearer on incoming virus. So uh, I, I like the use of plexiglass, but like anything, I'm hesitant to say there's one control. It still has to be part of more of a holistic control, including mask wearing and these other personal behaviors. Well, you have the microphone. You know, Jerome brought up a good point about healthy eating. And I'm going to ask him this question in a minute, but let me start with, and ask him how people are eating in the six-foot office and what they recommend. But let me start with you by asking an audience question, which is, um, what about communal refrigerators and microwaves and coffee makers? And how, how are you recommending that a healthy office environment make use of kind of those communal kitchen items? Yeah, so good question. I know this is what, uh, it's top of mind for everybody. And the way we've been talking about it with the with the companies we've been advising, multinational companies, um, is to start with this phased approach. And in the first phase, be very restrictive in terms of putting every control you can think of. And when you show you can manage it, meaning the regional risks are low and all of those indicators are being hit, leading and lagging, and your organizational leading and lagging indicators are being hit, you can move to that next phase, which might be reopening some of the common kitchen areas and the like. But in the beginning, be uh, err on the side of caution and be more restrictive. I actually think though, in terms of risk, that risk is low and manageable, right? If you're careful about washing your hands before you go in there, you use it, avoid touching your nose or face, don't overcrowd in that space, wear your mask. And when you're done making your coffee, you wash your hands again and leave. Uh, I think that's a pretty low risk. Uh, I should say low and manageable risk. You know, you make an interesting point because I think we're all gonna be trying to calculate our risks. Is it 
riskier for me to get on the elevator and go outside and go to Starbucks and stand in line or go in the communal kitchen and make coffee. It, we're all going to be making kind of individual choices with the best available information. And so, Jeroen, you pointed out that you're ahead of us. How are you handling the all-important question of coffee? <laughs> Well, we, we have a fantastic Italian coffee machine in our office and actually somebody serving it to you as well. So you can drink the best coffee in our office and, and that's what we want. We want clients to have great coffee, we want our employees to have great coffee and that's the same here with our kitchen. And we, we are the first probably uh, office restaurant to open again. It is uh, completely safe, it's freshly prepared in our kitchen and pre-packed delivered to our employees. So we take every guideline very, very seriously to prevent spreading at this moment and also to, we, we're going to find some further solutions when we go down the road about communal kitchens. But for now, we drink our fantastic Italian espresso here at the office. <laughs> so, so, Lindsay, let me turn to you with a bit of a subject change, but a question we're also getting from the audience, which is, what do you think about the value as people are returning to work of uh, temperature check? That is a great question, and, and one we're getting a lot in the, in the nerdy girls on our Dear Pandemic page. And I actually wrote a post about this, so it's top of mind. It is not going to catch everybody with COVID. We know that there are people with uh, asymptomatic courses of not disease, but they're just asymptomatic. Uh, but I will say that people are typically their most infectious when a new fever hits. So, and if you have a fever, you should be at home anyways. So I, I understand where that guidance is coming from, but people need to understand that it is not going to catch a net of every single person with COVID. And moreover, most people with fever don't have COVID. Even in the height of the epicenter in Wuhan and their fever clinic, when they use that as a screening tool, most of the people didn't have COVID. So it's an imperfect tool, but I think the guidance to stay home if you have a fever is a good one. Um, another question for uh, Jeroen from the audience. Is it better to have an open concept or individual offices for social distancing? To be honest, in the last 10 years, basically, every office in Holland changed to an open office planner. So, um, and I, I don't think it really matters, but, but people ask me, is this the end of the open office? And I really call it the new beginning. Have you think as a real open office, we call it an office garden where social distancing is possible. So not less space, but real personal space, also long-term. Um, I, I don't know if there's an office closed doors where they sit four people in a room, it's probably not that safe and only one people can use it. One person could use it. So it, it just depends on how much space you can create and what you're routing and, and and protocols are. I, I look forward to a new future where that's really, really, we take our employees seriously and we give them a good place to work, which is probably better than at home. So that's kind of the theme of a lot of your work, Joe, I think. So that's an interesting, um, that's an interesting place to transition to you. One of the questions we got from the audience for you is, there's a story in the New York Times today that raises concerns that empty offices might trigger other health threats like Legionnaire's disease. Uh, do you think that's a big threat? Yeah, absolutely. I, and um, the way we've been advising companies, I think we have to think about this in stages. And that is right now, many buildings are in a low occupancy stage and that presents some risks. And I'll talk about those in a second. Everyone right now is also focusing on how do we repopulate safely? And then we have to be thinking about healthy building strategies more long, long term, even beyond COVID. But what you need to focus on right now in the pre-occupancy period, and I know this topic well, that was the, the topic uh, in the New York Times, specifically around bacterial growth in water. So we're all hyper-focused on infectious disease, but our buildings are low 
dual occupancy. We're thinking about, you know, recommissioning our air handling systems like you should, but you also have to be flushing out your water system. Stagnated water is a great place for bacteria to proliferate, uh, particularly Legionella bacteria. I used to run point on Legionnaire's disease outbreaks for uh, the consulting company I worked for. So I know this well, and it's something that you can control pretty easily. If you flush water, make sure it's reaching all the distal outlets. You can measure for residual disinfectant like chlorine and pH and temperature. It's actually quite easy to control, but just don't make the mistake that you walk in after having a building that's been closed or shuttered for two months and think that the systems are gonna run just fine, right? These have to be tuned up just like a car. So in the weeks leading up to, or the week leading up to uh, reoccupancy, the, the building's gonna need uh, a tune-up. It's gonna need some attention and not just the air handling systems, the water system well. I'm getting a question here, Lindsay, that I think is for you, which is how do you deal with disbelievers? You know, how do you deal with people? I think this might be your empathy answer from earlier, but you know, if you're finding people who aren't taking physical distancing or social hygiene, et cetera, um, as seriously as they, as they should, how do you handle that? And mostly I think you had a good answer of how we do it on individual uh, person to person, uh, you know, conversations or interactions, but as an employer, how do you handle it? I think you lead with both empathy and curiosity as an employer, because getting at rooting out that behavior, you need to know where it's coming from. And, and you can't know until you engage in a trustful conversation around that. I do think it's important though, to cut it off at the, as I mentioned, there's this potential backfire effect if you let that linger too long in your workplace. So it has to be, this cannot be something that employers let slide. It really, you know, there's there's this infodemic that we talk about too, that we're fighting alongside the epidemic. And so I think early action is absolute. Lead with empathy and curiosity, but in the end, it's very important that you not let any sort of misinformation spread. Thank you for that. And, and Jeroen, I think uh, one question for you, which is we're getting a series of cleaning questions. You know, is it, better to do intense cleaning of the most highly trafficked areas or really serious sanitization overnight? Um, are there different types of disinfectants that seem to be working better than others? Kind of advice about cleaning regimens that you've seen as you've helped offices reopen. Uh, yeah, there's absolutely uh, new protocols on how things need to be cleaned or have to be cleaned to stay safe. That is starting with us from the deep clean and actually really that starting up, with, which we just discussed, is super important to start with a good good start um, and the protocols are pretty well described as well from what we've learned in the past. For now, I think there's a lot of information available, what it means to actually tailor it more to the current situation and social cleaning. One of the things we did, those simple things like those, those desk pads to keep a desk cleaner uh, and people feel completely safe that they have a uh, their own environment, which is clearly recycled paper. You can throw away at the end of the day, but it keeps the service cleaner than before. It's easier to clean. Doesn't mean you stop cleaning, clear protocols, daily basis. We only have one person a day in a flex desk. And at the end of the day, it's being uh, cleaned according to the protocols that we have made for, uh, for our cleaning company. That's a great uh, place to wrap this up because I wanted to say to the audience that just this week, the chamber uh, put on our website, on our reopen section of our website, a new downloadable flyer that you can customize to make sure that your employees and your customers know which guidelines you're following and which steps you're taking. So as these experts have discussed, an opportunity for you to be able to say, here's the PPE we're using, here's our cleaning and sanitization schedule, here's what we believe on health screening and social distancing, et cetera. And so this is something that you can 
download and customize to help instill confidence about your own procedures and protocols as you start to reopen. Uh, Mr. LaCursu, Dr. Allen, and Dr. Leininger, you were wonderful panelists. I knew I was going to learn a lot from you. I know the audience did too. Uh, we're grateful really grateful to have had you share your expertise with us. We know what a job means to a family, what a job means to a community, what a job means to health outcomes. And so your optimism about how we as businesses, how we as a society, and how we as individuals can help each other get through this public health crisis and through this economic crisis was really well received and, and beautiful to hear, really. So thank you for being with us. We're grateful to the U.S. Chamber Foundation for helping us navigate the return to work. Thank you.